welcome to the Delling Pod with me, James Delling Pod. And I am so excited about this special guest. I don't know how I managed to lure him onto the pod because, I mean, Nick, Nick Timothy, I'm, I, can I just say, I'm really, really glad to have you on the podcast because I think I'm sure I've been quite rude about you in the past. And yet I, I, I think you're a great guest. I think you've been, your recent pieces in The Telegraph have been absolutely on point. So whatever... I may have said about you in the past in a rude way. I kind of forgive you for, and I hope you forgive me for being horrid. Because I'm, you know, I, I, my my bark is worse than my bite. I think. Yeah, it's all water off ducks back. You are you are definitely mean about me on occasion. I'm sure you'll be mean about me again in the future when we uh, yes yeah. on economic things. But I think on some of the cultural things, I think we're probably in agreement. That's interesting, isn't it? Um, that. That is the, that is where we disagree on economics, um, because reading your pieces about in the Telegraph uh, about, well, first of all, you did a blistering attack on the Archbishop of Canterbury. And I thought that you beat him on theology, which is which is impressive or would be impressive if, if you if you didn't get the impression that Justin Welby doesn't actually know much about theology just just remind me what you were saying about about remind me of the thrust of that particular piece first well i mean i must say i was a bit nervous when i uh submitted the piece because uh <laughs> because it is something to cross swords with the archbishop on on theology but it, what he said uh struck me as being completely baffling he um I mean, he was under pressure from absolutely nowhere, as far as I could tell. But he went on the radio to announce that he was reviewing all the statues and and buildings uh, that were named after people in the Church of England estate. Um, but he was also um, he was asked by just um, uh, by Justin Webb on the on the Today program um, uh, whether we should forgive people who had committed sins in previous generations. And he said something really strange, which was that there can be forgiveness um, uh, if there is change now, which I thought was a really odd thing to say. He's, he's, firstly, um, it's, a, it's an interesting addition uh, of conditionality to, uh, to Christian forgiveness, but how one generation can be held to account for the sins of another is, is very surprising. And... Um, there are obviously biblical extracts that say that the you know that fathers shouldn't be uh, punished for the sins of sons and sons shouldn't be forgive, uh, shouldn't be punished for the sins of fathers. There are other bits of the Bible, uh, I think, in the Old Testament that say that um, nations can hold collective guilt. Uh, uh, and I was slightly surprised by some Christian left wingers on Twitter trying to make that argument to me. So it's a slightly novel thing for the left to be saying that nations should be held collectively guilty for several generations. Uh, and a pretty dangerous argument to make to boot. Yes, you sound like somebody who's quite versed in your scriptures. Are you, are you a, a churchgoer? Uh, not really. I mean, I, I consider myself a Christian, I suppose, but um, uh, I'm always, <laughs> I think I'm sort of theologically torn um, uh, in that uh, I find I find Anglicanism uh a little bit wishy-washy the older I get, uh, and I, I yep. sometimes wonder whether 
I'm uh, I'm destined to become a Catholic. There's a bit of Catholicism in my family, so um, maybe maybe there's a a pull towards Catholicism that I haven't understood before. Yes, I I think a lot of us, you know, feel that that pull as we get older. I often look. It's a bit like the distracted boyfriend uh, meme. I find myself look, look looking at, uh, over my shoulder at the the Catholic Church and my Anglican girlfriend is going what because i mean you can see why evelyn war converted there is definitely an appeal in well the catholic church at its best is not embarrassed by by ritual it's not embarrassed by um rigor which i think the, the the church of england has largely abandoned and there's also something quite seductive about the Catholic Church has emissaries. I don't, I don't know if you've ever come across Father Michael Seed, for example. He yeah. was... A, the, the, the Catholic Church has these very, very charming priests, which I'm sure you'll have come across in your life, who are very good at evangelizing on behalf of the Catholic Church. And it makes you think, that's a club I'd really like to belong, belong to. In the way that you... At the same time, you know, we've got these fantastic churches all over the country which are Anglican. When my children were younger, I used to take them to Chelsea Old Church and I used to sometimes uh, take part of the children's service because I wanted them to grow up to understand that this is part of the fabric of your culture and your your nation. That seems to me very important. I think I think the Church of England is almost more important culturally than it is religiously. Would you kind of agree with that? Well, I mean, I think it's for everyone to make decisions about, you know, what they believe in, in in terms of faith. But I think it's really important. I think it's interesting what you said about children. I think the same about children. It's really important, I think, that kids are brought up with uh, a certain kind of baseline of knowledge of Christianity. A, because that is what then yeah. gives them the chance to make an informed or, you know, sort of... Um, an educated uh, decision about about their own faith, uh, but B because um, it's part of what educationalists call cultural literacy, um, and and actually this brings on to sort of like questions of national identity and things like that. And I always sort of laugh at politicians who talk about things like British values uh, because they end up either saying it's um, uh, well, it's like it's liberal democracy, isn't it? Which is true of pretty much the whole of the West. Or they say it's it's the NHS, <laughs> which is like the NHS is great. It's one particular institution, but it's that that doesn't exactly amount to Britishness. And and I think Britishness and national identities of any kind come from the really long sweep of history and the stories we tell about ourselves and the institutions that we inherit, um, and and our and our sort of collective. Memories, some of which might be mythologized slightly, uh, some of which might be real and actually happen in our own lifetimes. Um, and part of that is is our Christian uh, history. And and even if you don't believe it, it, it's important in that respect. But it's also hugely important to even understand other aspects of our uh, cultural heritage. I mean, you you know, there's large parts of English literature that you wouldn't really understand if you didn't understand. Uh, you know, the, the, the foundations of Christianity. Yes, absolutely. I agree with that. That, that I, I can't, What did you study at university? 
Oh, I read politics, which uh, I kind of wish you I read, hadn't. Okay. Uh, wish I'd read history or English right. literature, I think. Yes, or, so or I, math, I read English. Be a billionaire. Or, or what? Or maths, yeah. if I wanted to be a billionaire. Yeah, but can you can you do that? I mean, if you if you've got a kind of arts artsy brain, I think it's this is one of the things that always bothered me about all those people who say yes, we should only be studying STEM subjects because because <laughs> STEMs are, are where the growing growing economy is and and everything else is worthless, and it's just not true. Some of us are, are, are gifted. Some of us have a mathematical bent. Some of us have an artistic bent, and and I think that the arts degree is very good at training you to think critically or or. Or at least they ought to be. But yeah, when I read English, um, it struck me that that point you made that right up until the most recent generation, um, every vaguely educated English person knew about the the the, par- the, the parable of the loaves and fishes, say, or or any any Martha Lazarus. They, they, these were all familiar names. Water into wine. And of course, every writer in literature would have been familiar with these stories and was writing for an audience uh, that they they understood would be familiar with with these these, um, tales. And suddenly we've been deracinated. And that, I think, is where your cultural conservatism and my cultural conservatism align and why I think you're far more of an ally than an enemy, even though you're a kind of panty-waist squish on the subject of economics. (laughs) <laughs> Which is good. Yeah, and it's kind of a case we agree on some things and disagree on others. I sort of, I find I find it really weird the way in politics people uh, they'll get drawn to a particular body of thought, whether it's like conservatism or social democracy or whatever, um, uh, and they'll be attracted to it on the ground on you know on a particular for a particular reason, and then they they feel like they need to conform across the whole piece um, because they've decided their you know, a social democrat, or they've decided they're uh, a conservative or a libertarian or whatever, and therefore they have to apply that logic to everything. I'm not really sure the world works in that kind of way. No. And I have to say, Nick, that it's it's not just you that I've been disappointed with on occasion. I look, for example, only only yesterday I found myself falling out with 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 the kind of economic allies that I have. People like Christian Nemitz, who's been on the on the podcast a couple of times, but he belongs to that school of thought, which really doesn't give a toss about whether the whole of England is concreted over and whether we build everywhere. And again, I think it's it's when I when I see people on the kind of libertarian end of the argument talking in this way, I realize I'm not really a strict libertarian because I very much care about the English countryside. I don't think we should be building all over it. And I imagine that you probably feel the same way on that score. Yeah, well, I mean, so you're a libertarian who lives in the country. Well, no, I, I, do you know what? It's interesting. I, when people sort of use the term libertarian about, my, uh, about themselves, my, my scepticism um, antennae start twitching because it seems to me that libertarianism is missing some key elements one of which is that that cultural thing that we just talked about just now that religion really is quite important whether or not you're a believer doesn't matter so much as you have to believe that this is a good thing this is part of our culture i'm not sure libertarians would care much about that no and i think and that is culture isn't only important in its own right 
it's because it contributes to identity. If you sort of think about what what it actually means to belong to a nation and a national community, uh, it requires a sort of solidarity, which means that sort of an extremist, you might be prepared to go to war to defend, uh, you know, your fellow countrymen and and your territory. Uh, but you might also, in in a more prosaic way, be asked to pay certain taxes or to accept that you know, the laws that are passed in your country, and and mm-hmm. that requires a way of recognizing one another and an understanding that uh, you will, you know, if you do right, you can fairly expect somebody else to do right by you. That there's going to be some kind of trust and reciprocity. And it's the familiarity of all the shared stories and shared symbols and institutions and places and the stories we tell about those places uh, that means that, you know, if you bumped into a fellow Brit uh, overseas, you would recognize things in one another quite quickly and you'd, uh, and you'd be able to talk yes. to one about faces. And in the same way as if, you know, people were pitched alongside one another in trenches during wartime, uh, they, that there was plenty that bound them together because of that kind of common culture. And yes, I think... I think... Uh, lefty liberals don't get it either. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. And uh, you can answer this question, or at least attempt to answer this question, because it was raised in the more recent piece you wrote about... Um, why it is that we have, that our political class, including our conservative political class, have surrendered to this relatively tiny minority of hard left thinkers indoctrinated by Foucault, by, you you made the point actually that it was Rudy Dutschke who who talked about the long march through the institutions, not not Antonio Gramsci, as is commonly thought. You you mentioned Gramsci. You also mentioned another person that I hadn't heard of. I've got the piece in front of me. He sounds like a scary cat. Gaetano Mosca. Yeah. Gaetano the fly. Who, he sounds <laughs> bloody evil. Uh, who is he? Tell me, no, where did he come from? I don't think he's evil. He's, um, uh, he's, uh, he's, uh, he was associated with people like Pareto, um, and they were, um, they were theorists of power. Uh, and so he was exploring right. the way sort of certain groups in society can hold power over society at large. Um, but I do think that that sentence about how a, a, an organised minority can sort of impose their will on a disorganised majority um, is actually quite an important quote for trying to understand where we are today, uh, because, um, because it is kind of baffling, right? I mean, I think the mainstream majority... Uh, would agree that racism is bad, but likewise, they don't want to tear down statues of Robert Peel on the basis that his dad had investment in the slave trade. Um, most people would say that we should treat transsexuals with respect and, and decency, but it doesn't mean that we should uh, deny the reality of biological sex or uh, impinge on the rights of women to feel secure and have privacy and that kind of thing. Uh, and yet there is this quite small extreme fringe that is driving the debate uh, on all sorts of different issues. Um, and I think, and it is partly because they're organized. I think it's partly because, uh, to be honest, I think the majority of us just don't understand what's going on. What, what is this stuff? Where is it coming from? Why is it happening? Um, and also like, the rules are so confusing. Is it, you know, like, 
you can you can say say something that was quite right two years ago and is now going to throw you in jail or uh, it's it's very confusing for a lot of people and and actually I think it's confusing for politicians as much as anybody. Uh, I think we've got a particular challenge in the Conservative Party in that uh, you know quite a lot of Conservatives are in politics to okay, Conservative politicians are in politics to um, to feel like they're running the economy well uh, and to sort of treat things a bit like a business and they're not in it for cultural issues. Uh, and so they find all of this quite distasteful and weird and would prefer not to talk about it. And to be honest, I've always hated the idea of a culture war. I think a culture war is really worrying because, because there's little room for compromise compared to on a lot of economic questions where you can kind of recalibrate back and forth. Uh, with cultural stuff, it feels like it's quite um, zero sum where, you know, the winner takes all and then maybe you change who's in power and then that winner takes all and uh, I really worry about it but I've got to the point where I just I I now think um, we can't you know we can't wish this away it's here and people who want to stand up for you know, our cultural uh, inheritance who want to stand up for the kind of values of the mainstream of society and the institutions of the country really need to say enough's enough and we need to fight this. And to yeah. do that, we're going to need to be much better organised. Yes. You, you you mentioned earlier that when politicians tried to come up with a list of things which were quintessentially British. I can't, who, who was it who did that? Which government was that? It was very vogueish when Gordon Brown became Prime Minister. I'm fairly certain it was entirely because uh, focus groups said English voters found him a bit Scottish. Uh, and so he was desperately trying to show what a patriotic Brit he was, which is why he talks right. about sort of British values a lot. And he used the he used the Union Jack a lot. And so he talked. He obviously talked about British shops and British work, workers uh, at one stage, uh, which got him into quite a bit of trouble on his own side. Yes, uh, I remember that that one of the the feeble offerings they came up with was tolerance. <laughs> and I was thinking, yeah, right. So what? The soldiers standing shoulder to shoulder in the t- trenches, waiting to go over the top, were fighting to preserve our tradition of tolerance. I don't think so. It's, it is much more. You and I could come up with a list now, and definitely high on the list. I think would be our history, yeah, and our religion. If you if, if if those two aren't, aren't, aren't one and the same thing, and it's it's interesting, isn't it? That well, we're seeing this, seeing it with now with Black Lives Matter. That we're so embarrassed of our past, we're not even prepared to shout from the rooftops the fact that 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 in eighteen hundred and seven, I think it was, we passed an act against the slave trade, and William Wilberforce had been campaigning to end the slave trade and we we sacrificed some of our, our royal navy to to police the, the the slave trade stuff like this we should be proud of but whenever i whenever i were in the in the past i don't anymore when i when i used to go on to sort of bbc programs to talk to debate history with with a, a sort of bbc endorsed historian usually a female. What I'd normally find is that the BBC endorsed female historian would balk at the notion that that 
we had anything to be proud of with our history. And actually, we should be taught about the we should be taught our history warts and all as 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 though somehow we'd we'd engage in this massive cover up. And actually, of course, President Trump is experiencing this at this moment as, as well from from things like CNN, that they're saying the same thing, that actually you may feel proud of, of America's history and you may feel proud of Britain's history. But actually, it was built on on exploitation and slavery and blood. And and it's not like that, is it? I mean, we've, we've got much to be proud of, much to, to bind us. Well, there's quite a lot of exploitation in our history. I mean, I've got ancestors who were deported to Australia for stealing a chicken. Uh, I mean, you know, I mean, I don't well, think, quite right too. I don't think, I don't think yeah, you're thieving uh, bastard ancestors. Uh, if Justin Welby is listening, I apologise for the sins mm. of my uh, ancestors. Um, I, I, of course, there there is oppression and exploitation in the whole history of humanity, um, and and. You know, the idea that everybody whose ancestors can be traced back all the way through the entire history of the British Isles were not exploited and oppressed is, is absurd. I do think that, that we, we need to find a way of, uh, of being able to um, uh, enjoy and, uh, and educate younger people about um, our history and our institutions and, yeah, these, you know, these shared stories. We do also need to do it in a way that is still inclusive for newcomers. Uh, I mean, it is definitely it, it is definitely the case that uh, um, we need to avoid telling these stories in a way that means they are sort of exclusively uh, sort of for you know white Anglo-Saxons and Celts, uh, because that would actually fail the test on its own objectives. So we're, we you know, we are a, a multiracial society now. So we do need to find ways of telling oh. these stories that are. Um, uh, that are inclusive for Brits who come from um, uh, whose who's, uh, parents and grandparents and so on came from other parts of the world. But that is obviously not impossible. I mean, a large number of the people who live in Britain who, uh, who, who won't be able to trace their ancestry all the way back to the days of Shakespeare uh, do nonetheless have ancestral stories that are connected to Britain in different ways, whether that's through the Empire and Commonwealth, whether it's through... Uh, common European history uh, and that kind of thing. So I think sometimes these things are set up in a way that means that you you either want to talk about British history, um, you know, um, or uh, you don't because you're you're mindful of the interests of of ethnic minorities. Actually, we need to find a way of, of being able to do both of those things and make sure that everybody is is able to take some pride in. Uh, in in the country's history and the institutions we have, but that's 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 obviously possible because, you know, while of course there is some bad in our history, as there is in every country's history, there's plenty of good too, and lots that we can take. Um, it's interesting, Nick. Um, I think you've fallen into the intersectional trap there. This is what this is where my my cuck my cuck antennae have been twitching quite a lot as you were speaking there. I, I I couldn't disagree with you more. I don't think we've we've got any business trying to adjust our history teaching it, it, to. It's, I, I really resent the idea, um, and I think it's common throughout the political class, and I think it's a it's, it's a function of 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 intellectual sloppiness and 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 cowardice. This idea that somehow somebody's skin colour. Or their their particular background means that they can't 
they can't share in the British identity and the British history. As far as I'm concerned, no, I agree with you. If you're that. a, I'm saying, uh, if you're a Muslim kid, kid, you know, say say you've come over from Syria. If you've if you become a British citizen, then Britain's history is your history. We don't have to have sudden special mod modules about Syria to make them feel good. We don't have to have special Islam mod modules to show that we care about Islam. The, look, the Black Prince may not have been black, but he was he, he he did his stuff on behalf of every British person, whatever their skin colour. It's our heritage, and I think that it's. This is the thing that, that really exercises me, that I think that what is really important about um, our culture is, um, where am I going with this, that I think we need to feel not embarrassed about clinging on to our past, as, as, as the enemies of the history might put it. Because actually, it's not we're not trying to take refuge in a world that no longer exists and, and rejecting the modern world. In order for the modern world to be a good place to live in, we have to embrace our past uh, as our collective history and, and celebrate that fact. Yeah, Am I, I making I, any kind of sense there? Yeah, 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 totally. And I actually I agree with what you just said. Um, uh, and I actually think I think it's a real problem when people start to argue that uh, that kids of minority ethnicities need to be taught, you know, Stormzy instead of Shakespeare. Um, yeah. uh, you know, that in itself is racist and patronising anyway, but um, but it's... it's, it's I know, just Stormzy shit as well. It's, <laughs> what exactly, Shakespeare is one thing and Stormzy is quite another. I mean, I agree. Um, but, um, but it also means that... Uh, that we'd be we'd be teaching kids on the basis of their skin color um, things that were less relevant to the national story, and we'd be depriving them of the cultural literacy that they need um, to to get by in in Britain. We need to we need to teach everybody uh, about Shakespeare and about um, about all aspects of our history. I think what I mean is, um, and I've got a section in my book about this where, um, where I, I take the piss out of Gordon Brown a little bit. Um, Tell me the title of your book. Mention it. Yeah, like sorry. It now, so can... My book is called Remaking One Nation, uh, The Future of Conservatism. Um, and, and it talks about some of these things. I take the piss out of Brown a little bit for, for what he said about Britishness. And I list some of the things uh, that I think you know, add up to, it's not an exhaustive list, but sort of add up to a sense of Britishness, whether it's, uh, you know, sort of 10, 6 to 6 and all that, or whether it's, um, or whether it's, you know, cup fine all day or uh, neeps and tatties or, or whatever. Um, but I think, um, but firstly, there are certain things that are uh, true to the modern British identity that actually uh, do come from other parts of the world, which should be acknowledged a lot, you know, the, the Balti, I'm a Brummie, uh, you know the Balti. Uh, um, so am I. You know, part I, of so, <laughs> I, I can tell from your accent, um, <laughs> and, and that was very convincing just now. Um, oh, right, Jackie. <laughs> that was terrible. Uh, I won't be doing mine. Um, but that's you know that's as much uh, as like part of our sort of like food heritage now as uh, as as lots of traditionally English things. Um, but I think that one of the challenges is if you're um, you know. If, if your heritage is uh, subcontinental Asian, if your if your um, grandparents are Indians, um, then if you sort of you know if you look at a picture of Churchill and you're talking about Churchill, then firstly Churchill 
doesn't look like you, whereas he does look like you and me, a bit fatter, a bit older. Um, um, he doesn't look like you, but also the stories that uh, um, their families might know about Churchill are are sometimes different and sometimes more complex than ours because we we immediately associate Churchill with uh, the Second World War. They they might associate him uh, not only with the Second World War but also uh, with sort of opposition to Indian independence and things like that. I'm not saying we should become really apologetic about those things. I just mean that I think when we when we talk about our history, we've got to do it in a way that uh, is also cognizant of the fact that you know a fifth of the country can't date their ancestors all in England all the way back to uh, you know Magna Carta and the Glorious Revolution. Yeah, again, I sort of disagree with that. I mean, okay, I agree. Most of us, we're all. De- we're all descended from all the those of us who are born here are descended from Edward the Third, aren't we? I think I think he's the kind of it's a bit like everyone's related to is it Genghis Khan? I think we're all descended from Genghis Khan as well because of his mass rapes across um uh or is it Attila the Hun? I forget one of the two, but uh, I, I I can't disagree. I I I think history teachers should teach Churchill at, from the from the British perspective and. Every teacher should be trained, ready with the answer at the back of the class when the, when when a, a kid from a kind of probably a an Islamist family comes up and says, uh, "Your your Churchill, he was responsible for the Bengal famine in it." And the teacher should be very very well briefed to come up with the answers, having probably read Andrew Roberts's book explaining why actually that's just complete bollocks. You know that this is this is a kind of left wing divisive propaganda point i mean i i had i had this once on a, on a on that that bbc program i hinted at earlier with with the with the token bbc historian and the, and there was an there was an islamist who made who made this point and i'm thinking we should stop entertain we should stop indulging this crap we should teach pretty much the ga henty version of history it, it, it should be uh, or or he marshall it should be our island story something we can be proud of it doesn't matter what color we are what 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 religion we are this is the basic you live in a christian culture of course you're free to to practice your own religion because that's one of the things we do in this country we allow diversity of 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 our religious practice but at the end of the day you are in a an anglican country uh, we broke from 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 the Ro- the, the, the church of rome because of this that happened in in henry VIII's time yada yada there it is your history be proud of it if at home you want to celebrate your own history and talk about that with granddad or whatever from bengal or whatever absolutely fine but we don't go any further than that i mean i'm quite hardcore on this point and i wish that i think conservatives ought to be more hardcore by the way sorry here we are we've got halfway through the interview we've been talking for half an hour and i haven't really introduced you to i mean there are going to be american listeners who would you haven't a clue who who Nick Timothy is. Just just take me back. Um, tell us what you did in the Theresa May government. You were you were a special advisor to a former prime minister. Yeah, you know? but before I do that, can I pick you up on what you just said? Because I think that I just want to. Yes, get do. You, I mean, you said that you know we we allow people to um, practice different faiths and worship different uh, religions, uh, but that's precisely yeah. the point. That tradition of pluralism uh, comes from 
religious difference and actually you know quite a bloody religious past uh in um in you know post reformation uh and, also, and in the end uh we as a society uh, learned to become more pluralistic and tolerant of difference uh, on the basis that we, you know there was <laughs> there was a lot of unnecessary bloodshed, uh, uh, a lot of uh, unnecessary conflict, and and we concluded, you know, put simply and oversimplistically, uh, that it's better to tolerate uh, difference than to have perpetual religious and civil wars, um, and so and so actually. Uh, I think this is. I think it's quite a good example of how history. No, I don't think it should be taught in a in a in an overly sort of simplistic narrative sense. Uh, of course, you know we need we need like kids to understand chronology and narratives and and they, and it should be taught in a positive way. We've so much to be proud of as a country, um, but actually, it's actually. I think it's through difficulties like that that we became a more pluralistic society. Um, and and we should apply some of that logic uh, in what we're talking about now, I think. Yeah, except that you're you're demanding a level of nuance, which I think is is actually might be acceptable if you're studying it for A level. But if you're doing it GCSE level, there's not room for that. You you just need the stories. You need the stories served up. It needs to. Be, I mean, I agree with you about narrative. It needs to be a fairly straightforward narrative. Kings, queens, battles, that kind of thing. Dates. That's all in the early stages. Later on, maybe yeah, you can you can learn more about the Bengal famine, but not but not in not at the basic level. Anyway, tell me. Sorry, I I, I haven't given you a, a, a chance yeah. to come back there, but I don't want to, I just don't want to get this conversation bogged down in education because I want to I want you to tell us a bit about yourself. Tell us about tell us about how you started out in politics um, and where you ended up. Uh, well, I've, I've been knocking around Tory politics um, and Westminster and Whitehall for about 20 years now. So um, that so I think I, gra I graduated in 2001 and I wrote to the to Tory HQ, to the guy running the research department, Rick Nye, and said, can I have a job? Here's my CV. And for no apparent reason, they gave me one. Um, I think the reason was because the Tories were so screwed at that point at sort of Blair's sort of uh, heyday and we were we just got rid of William and had William Haig and had replaced him with IDS uh, so I suspect nobody else wanted to work there so that's how I started off right and then you 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 started working for Theresa May when she was what home secretary is that kind of thing yeah so I sort of, I, I spent uh, a few different periods uh, working for the party in opposition and then in 2010 uh, I, I worked for I'd worked for Theresa a little bit sort of through the research department where I worked, um, uh, but alongside other people too. Uh, and then in 2010, I went into the Home Office with her, uh, and I spent I spent five years in the Home Office, which, as the Brits listening will know, is the Department for Crises and Disasters, and that's where all my hair fell out. Um, uh, so I left I left there burned out in 2015. And then you became special advisor to Theresa May when she was prime minister. Yeah, so then I sort of I had a year out running a charity, and then the Brexit referendum came along, and the country did the right thing and voted to leave. Um, and and David resigned, and at that point, I um, my holiday in Sicily was rudely interrupted 
and I flew back to the UK and and we we were straight into a leadership contest um, and which Theresa won very handsomely and then uh, and then she became prime minister and we had a year before we screwed it all up in the 2017 election because I'm torn here Nick uh, what I really like talking to my to my podcast guests about is ideas and and you're clearly a man of ideas and we could have a great discussion but at the same time it would be a complete waste if I didn't ask for your inside of view of of conservative politics and I was thinking I kind of owe you a semi-apology in that I've said in the past that Theresa May was the worst prime minister conservative prime minister ever but Boris Johnson has said, hold my beer. Uh, hold my beer. Uh, and he's, I mean, effortlessly, effortlessly eclipsed. I mean, I don't know whether you agree with me on this one or whether you even want an adventure opinion, but it seems to me that this has got to be, I, I, well, I, I mean, Ted Heath, I suppose. Ted Heath was really, really shit too. But I'm not sure I could ever envisage a worse Conservative administration than this one. I mean, or a worse Prime Minister than Boris Johnson. Um, they seem to have sold every conservative value down the river, uh, including including the culture cultural wars we were discussing earlier. While at the same time, while supposedly led by an instinctively libertarian prime minister, have proved to be the most authoritarian conservative administration ever. So tell me, am I right? Yeah. You you are a, a, a polemicist uh, by profession, I think. Is that fair? Well, I don't. I don't deliberately. I don't. Don't wake up in the morning and 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 say to myself, "What can I argue in a really exaggerated way in order to generate lots of heat but no light?" That's not how I think. I think. I think sometimes we. Uh, polemicists as you call us or uh, the other word people use is contrarian as though we adopt positions just to be difficult yeah no i, don't I say fair. no no I, I i speak very much as i as i find things i suppose i do get passionate and angry about real injustices like we're experiencing at the moment with for example the masks which were fo- foisted on us this week i think this is absolute lunacy um but I do very much worry about the authoritarian direction that, that this government is going in. And uh, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not even inviting you to, to agree with me here. What, what I really wanted to ask you is a, a more basic question, which is why is the Conservative Party, well, the, the Parliamentary Party, so utterly shit? I mean, why? it seems to be a government of all the no talents. It's, it's, there seems to have been nothing good about the Conservative Party since Margaret Thatcher. And I wonder whether you could sort of help it make sense of this to me. Why is it that there are so many? Well, number one, why are there so many MPs in the party uh, like that thicko ex-army chap? What's his name? Um, Johnny Mercer, who clearly are not Conservatives, who are clearly just there to be MPs. What, why are there so many of those? Why is the Conservative Party incapable of standing up for conservatism of any any form? Uh, and is there any hope? So those are those are my questions to you. Well, I mean, I'm very glad you said that you weren't inviting me to agree because uh, I think what you said was a load of bollocks, to be honest. Um, uh, in oh, the no. best as possible. Um, I think. No. I mean, 
I think I think I, partly it depends on what we're what we think conservatism is, and I think a lot of people are under the mistaken impression that conservatism is some form of libertarianism or sort of uh, sort of strong liberalism. And and to me, what, what about conservatism? Well, yeah, I mean, the, I mean, is that, is that an aberration? Uh, no, I mean, I think Thatcherism is a bit complicated for me because it. Uh, I think she she did an awful lot of what was necessary and, frankly, just in time. Um, uh, but I think she also unleashed uh, um, some sort of social forces and 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 bequeathed some quite serious long term economic problems that uh, that we're still struggling with as a country. Um, uh, and, and actually, well, brief, uh, briefly what? Well, I mean, the, the sort of rapid deindustrialization of parts of the country, and I'm not defending the sort of state subsidies or the way in which some of those nationalized industries were run, but, uh, but, but I mean, it's definitely true that, uh, if you look at, um, some of the, 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 the regions in the Midlands and North of England and in Wales, um, uh, some of those places are still suffering from quite long term economic problems some of which were um some of which were brought about by the loss of um of of the of the large employers in those places in the 80s do you mean do you mean the the, the mining industry for example i can see why that might have been essentially destructive and manufacturing a large declined considerably uh through the 80s and 90s i mean the west's manufacturing base is has declined quite rapidly um, over the last 20 years or so, but actually Britain started declining much earlier. Um, does that make you a Donald Trump fan? No. Because he's, uh, he's kind of onshoring American industry, isn't he, after no. years when it's been kind of sent out to Mexico and China and stuff. I think there's a couple of things that Trump um, actually correctly observed, whether, you know, whether he did it himself whether it was his advisors, whether um, whether he kind of stumbled across it, or whether it was really thought through, I don't know. But I think he was he spotted. I think he spotted two things that I think um, I think you know I doubt some of his solutions, but I uh, I think the observations were correct. One is one is uh, the world has needed to stand up to China for a long time, um, and 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 actually he started to do that. Uh, and the second is that. We've got this kind of mentality with policymaking. It's true in Britain as well, where um, there's this kind of crude utilitarian uh, calculus. Um, and you can sort of see it, in, like when you're inside government, you see it all the time with impact assessments. Uh, and policies are, sub- are subject to these impact assessments, which themselves are based on all sorts of assumptions about the way the world works. And if the impact assessment comes back saying, well, this particular policy, um, uh, you know, in net terms, overall, over a period of 20 years, will make the country, you know, a fraction of 0.01% better off than it's worth doing, even if it completely ruins an entire region of the country or an entire sector of the economy or... Uh, or requires things that the public don't really want. And correspondingly, uh, there are things which might be of real social benefit or of real benefit to a particular part of the country uh, that won't get done because the 
great impact assessment treasury machine comes back and says, oh, no, it will make us incredibly marginally slightly worse off over a period of years. Um, and okay. see the way that logic applies in things like trade agreements or, uh, in Britain's case, a lot of the time, um, immigration policy, for example. Um, and, and I think it was that kind of utilitarian logic that led, you know, certainly the Clintons, both of them, um, uh, would sort of stand up and say, well, you know, free trade is good because it makes us all very slightly better off. Uh, but they didn't really stop to think or talk about what that meant for families in the Rust Belt. Uh, and I think since yeah. since Bill Clinton signed the um, treaty that effectively took China into the WTO, I think something like 60,000 American factories have closed. 60,000. Yes. Well, we did a podcast about this, actually, um, that the admission to of China to WTO three months to the day after 9-11 was far, far more damaging to certainly to the to the Western world than 9-11 was, that, that, it, that the fallout has been far greater. So I I agree with you on, on that one, although it does sound like a kind of observer editorial from from 20 years ago what you're saying there that 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 um you know that the erosion of britain's manufacturing base i mean where 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 are you on on these free ports that boris is uh, this is one of the very few few boris wheezes that i think might have legs that i, I mean do, do you not think that if we want to to rescue these these regions i mean i agree with you wales is just a you know a sort of it's a failed state, isn't it? Really, it's it's a it's a sort of failed welfare state. I suppose you could say the same thing as Scotland as, uh, as well, which is a shame because they're nice. They're, they've got nice countryside and stuff, um, and I've got nothing against the people. But but I think the actual their their economy is a, a disaster. So do you think that if we have free ports with low taxes, that might be a solution? Well, I mean, I I, I actually don't, I don't disagree with the characterisation of Scotland and Wales. It's not quite. I don't think it's quite like that. Um, and actually, I think that the well, Scottish economy in particular is, is more prosperous than most of the English regions, I think. Um, uh, um, well, you know, but I, I, wait a second, Scotland's got a tiny, tiny percentage of the population which produces all the economic value, and the rest are just kind of living off fried Mars bars on uh, at taxpayers' expense. I mean, that's that's the deal in Scotland. Come on, yeah, yeah, let's, right. let's let's not let's not pretend. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm not. Well, I, I kind of disagree with your uh, characterization. Well, you, because you've been too long in you've been too long in politics, Nick. That's the problem. You've 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 become kind of too cautious about telling it like it is. You think that's true? Sorry. How much time have you spent in Scotland and Wales? If you think that's true, I've got I've got I've got family. Uh, I, I, I don't I don't. Really, have them single single out in case they get you know denied denied medical care or something or get you know get force fed leaks or something. But but I, I've got it put it this way. I've got enough experience of Wales to know that even though I love Wales and 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 wish good things on it, the economy is basically just kaput. It is. I mean, you you might get exceptions, but it's it, it it's run by. 
look, devolved government has been a disaster for Wales and Scotland, I think, despite what Dan, Dan Hannan promised us, that, that you know, if, if you uh, give people more of a democratic say in their region, then, then wonderful things will happen. It hasn't happened. You've just got the kind of really no talented people who shouldn't be anywhere near the reins of government making oppressive rules and, and uh, just wasting money on an epic scale. That's, I suppose, look, we, we, we've come to the crux of our disagreement. I do not believe that government spending has the power to do good. I really genuinely believe that government should leave the economy well alone and that it's the private sector that generates value and enables people like you to do all your kind of lovely public sector stuff. But it's it's a, it's an indulgence which is only possible as a result of the, the, the hard work and efficiency of the private sector. I mean, I'm I'm sure uh, I'm sure sort of fresh off reading some Hayek or something that might feel real. Um, uh, but I mean, you know, you just yeah, you well, Hayek's right. But you just disparaged, uh, you know, the 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 economies of Scotland and Wales. Um, uh, you know, we've been sort of waiting for the invisible hand to come and rescue. Uh, some no, of the they're a product of government. They're a product of over-government. It's, it's precisely this, that, that the welfare state saps people's desire to go out and do stuff. In fact, in fact, rather like furlough, which is another classic example of this, furlough, the, the reason we're in this mess right now, one of the main reasons is because of the over-generous furlough payment, which, which paid people 80% of their wages to sit on their asses doing nothing for no real reason. And is there any wonder people don't want to go back to work? I mean, they, they may say, oh, we're frightened of the virus. What it really is, is they've been so cushioned by this free money for doing bugger all that they'd like more free money for doing bugger all. Well, I was under the impression we were asking people uh, to stay at home because we were living through an unprecedented pandemic and a, and a serious threat to life. But the, I, well, the bigger question is it's not unprecedented. Well, I mean, it's unprecedented in the modern world. I well, even even I dispute even that. Actually, I think you need to spend more time reading lockdown uh, skeptics if you haven't already. Which I mean, in terms of in terms of, I missed. Well, the, the one in in 1968, the 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 Hong Kong flu. There've been there've been a number of a number of so-called pandemics, if you want to use that word, where. Yeah. The yeah, number of deaths and the number of deaths rate has been as bad. Nothing on the scale with the means of international uh, travel and connectivity that we have today. I mean, this is... Uh, this I, is no, I'm, I'm not serious. buying this. It, the, the only different thing about, about this, this pandemic is the, is the response to it. The, 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 the pandemic itself is, you know, I mean, it's, it flu's nasty. People die of flu. It's not pleasant. I, I, you know, I, I, I feel sorry for anyone who gets it. But I think there's been a massive... Massive government overreaction, but in a way, I mean, if, they, uh, look, I I mean, if, if you think there's been an overreaction by government, then you actually you have to accuse um, uh, pretty much every government of the world and every medical establishment of the world, uh, almost all the world's scientific advisors uh, of the same. That's overreaction. another story, yeah, yeah, and I suspect those scientific and medical advisors are better equipped to tell us about the dangers of it than you and I are. Yeah, yeah, the patronising point. Yeah, I was. I, no, this I is why I. I, I mean, it's I'm, always, it's always much better. It's always much better. I find to find points of agreement rather than disagreement because otherwise it's just like you say this, I say that, I say that. But I, so I, I, I'm, I'm trying to. 
Let's go back to the original questions, which which you dismissed as bollocks. I'm not sure um, that I would agree with that. Um, which is that? Okay, we'll go back to to the piece that you wrote, the uh, the one, the most recent one, headlined. Our fifth, our fearful leaders are failing to stand up to a radical woke minority, and it's clear from reading that piece that you and I do agree quite strongly on some things, and what and one of this one of these things is the failure of our political class to stand up for conservative values, to stand up against the hard left. And we see this, I mean, even, even people that you would expect to be quite forthright in standing up to this stuff, people like, I mean, okay, they're either marginalised largely, like Andrew Bridgen MP, who I think is very courageous, and but but he's you know he's he's on a wing of the party which is which is all but ignored. You've got people like Steve Baker, who's sound on some issues, but clearly has to be quite politic at times. That that there is something in the Conservative governmental party apparatus which presents people prevents people from defending conservative values. Would you, would you agree with that at least? Well, I think when, when I criticise leaders, I actually think there's a problem across pretty much every level of society. So it's, you know, whether it is the Archbishop of Canterbury, whether it's the people who run universities, uh, whether it's business leaders. I mean, like, you know, Arsenal, Arsenal Football Club, um, you know, very, very quick to say, yeah, we're going to be, um, it, you know, we're going to encourage our players to take the knee um, and say that Black Lives Matter and things like that. Um, yeah. But when, but when Mesut Ozil spoke out about the treatment of Muslims in China, uh, they told him to shut up because of the number of shirt sales in China. Uh, you know, these things are, they're almost all hypocrites along the way. Um, but there is, a, mm. there is also a problem with uh, with political leaders too, um, and and I think yeah I, I think I think in the Tory Party uh, a significant number of MPs just aren't in it uh, for cultural reasons. They're economic liberals, um, and some of them are social liberals too, and um, and that's what that's what yes. they want to spend their time doing, talking about, thinking about, and legislating for. Uh, so, so, and they and they find a lot of these arguments terribly embarrassing, uh, partly because they're so polarizing. So, so it really is quite often uh, a case of, well, you know, do you believe in pulling down these statues, or um, or are you a racist? Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 You're right. Yeah. Yeah. If you're a politician who says, well, no, I, you know, I, I, I think statues should only come down if there's proper due process and it's done. Uh, under the rule of law, then you're already suspected as being um, some kind of mean-spirited racist, which is obviously nonsense, but it scares a lot of people into silence. Um, so I think some of them are just afraid, some of them are just not interested in this um, agenda, some of, it, some of them just wish it would go away, um, but it's not going to go away, it's only going to get worse, I think. So, so okay, now we come to the heart of it. So yours is... A, a council of despair in a way because it's it, 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 and it and it reflects something i've noticed i mean one of my one of my best mates is 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 michael gove um and gove we occasionally speak to each other and and what's fascinating about gove is he never tells me anything of interest or use about anything that's going on in politics he's he is 
pathologically discreet and it's really, really annoying. So I'm constantly having to read between the lines about the shit that's going down in the Conservative Party. And you know, he's my he's my in in a way to what you can and can't do within government. And the impression I get, and maybe you can confirm this, is that you can go in to politics and be an ideologue like me, and I'm very proud to be an ideologue. I, you know, I, I, I believe in first principles, and I think that we should act according to first principles and think everything through on those grounds, because then you know what your clear line is and you know, know how to do the right thing at all times. Uh, and the impression I get reading between the lines is that the system is so compromised that the the deep state, the, the, the civil servants are so irredeemably left wing um, that there are so few decent players to pick from for cabinet level appointments that actually to expect the Conservative Party to do anything conservative anymore is just a fantastical delusion. Am I right? Uh, well, I think when you say uh, something that is properly conservative, I think you might mean something different to me. Um, I mean, okay. I think I think that I think the state itself is a problem and it needs to be reformed uh, considerably. Um, uh, I think you know the civil service is a problem. Uh, it's some of the senior civil servants, I think, uh, have delusions of grandeur, uh, enjoy the lack of accountability. Uh, think that they're the permanent power. Uh, politicians come and go, uh, but there's not, um, you know, there's not enough expertise. They recognise generalism, and people move in and out of jobs every three minutes, um, so nobody really yeah. knows everything. Um, they don't move in and out of the private sector uh, for maybe cultural reasons. Actually, I think things like pension contributions and boring rules like that make it harder for them to do it. Uh, which is a problem. So I think the civil service needs to be reformed. I think I, um, uh, I would I would decentralise more. Uh, I think we part of the problem is that we're trying to run a, a complex country of seventy million people from uh, Whitehall, and uh, and that you know almost by definition is um, uh, is is means it's very difficult to succeed. Um, uh, and so I think, I mean, I, I personally favour a federal United Kingdom with an English parliament and government um, and, and probably decentralisation within that. Um, and I think, I think if things are managed at a more sensible scale, then people who are elected might stand a better chance of doing the things that uh, they promise and their mandate gives them the power to do. But it's very difficult at the moment, part, partly for the reasons I've given and partly because, you know, ministers really are sort of, um, here one minute, gone the next. Yes. Um, are you a fan of Margaret Thatcher? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I've just got a, I've probably got a qualified opinion of her in the sense that uh, I think she, uh, I think she did uh, some incredibly important things. Uh, but I think, yeah. I think, I think, um, I think the sort of the speed of the change was such that certain communities have taken well. I mean, haven't recovered, and uh, and then future, you know, later decisions by other governments have probably compounded um, um, some of those problems. Uh, and I think she, um, you know, I can't remember who it was said. Um, 
that she thought that uh, by freeing the economy, she sort of envisaged a society in the image of her father, and she bequeathed a, a society in the image of her son. Uh, uh, and I think I think there's a it's little bit of um, <laughs> there's a there's a little bit of um, truth in that. Um, so I mean, I, so I, I think she's undoubtedly one of the great figures of conservative politics and British government. But I mean, it's not that, you know I'm, I wouldn't lionise any individual politician because they all you know they all make mistakes as well as uh, alongside their achievements, and even their achievements sure. are sometimes tainted by the fact that actually um, you know times move on, and I think it serves the Conservative Party really badly to be arguing about her. Um, you know, 30 years after she left office. Okay. Uh, the reason I was asking you about, about Margaret Thatcher is that is that Martin Durkin's line on Margaret Thatcher is that she wasn't really a conservative. She was a radical and that she wasn't representative of, of conservatism. Um, and I have to say, true. looking at... It is probably true. Partly, yeah. I think she was actually quite socially conservative. I think she was probably underestimating some of the forces she was unleashing through her economic radicalism. Because, because, okay. So, we've agreed that your version of conservatism is your understanding of conservatism is different from my conservatism, which makes it quite difficult for you to answer the the next question in a way that's going to satisfy me. But what what conservative things have, have any conservative governments done in the in the last decade or so, other than sort of holding the line and maybe being slightly less shit than it would have been under Labour? <laughs> I actually, to be honest, I, I think if you think about the fact that uh, Blair was prime minister for 10 years um, and yeah. he created uh, devolved government in Scotland and Wales, for better or worse, and he, uh, uh, and, and he and Gordon Brown left really big uh, legislative frameworks like the Human Rights Act and the Equality Act, which we're still living yes. with, uh, then, then actually of the really lasting things that have happened since 2010 and the Tories getting back in, you would say that Brexit is probably the only one. And that was done by mistake because Cameron didn't want it to happen. Um, yes. And, and, I, and I'm frustrated uh, with the modern Tory party that it hasn't tried to build... It hasn't tried to build institutions or renew institutions or reform them um, to make sure that, uh, you know, power resides with people and communities and so on. And it hasn't tried to unpick some of those quite, I think, um, yes. you know, unfortunate changes that, that Labour bequeathed us. And so, and so yeah. if, you're, if, if your complaint is that, I completely agree with you. Uh, that is my complaint. If your complaint is, look, Boris's government is talking about spending lots of money through infrastructure spending and, uh, and it's telling people to wear masks because of the virus, then I kind of disagree because I don't think those things are unconservative. Uh, but if it's the first thing, I, I'm totally with you. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I, I, I'm a great believer in, in kindling our love rather than, than fermenting dissent between us. Um, I think that the Equalities Act and the Human Rights Act are, have been devastating to Britain's culture. Surely 
the, the very least the Conservative Party should be doing, the Conservative government should be doing, is repealing those things because they are undermining everything that, that a Conservative Party ought to be doing. Yeah, so I mean, why see, is there no appetite for that? Well, I'd like to see that. And I think I mean, we, we should also remember it's kind of incumbent on all of us to make these arguments. We need to try to create an intellectual climate in which people understand why these things might be necessary um, and where there is some pressure starting to, that, that starts to be put on uh, conservative ministers and advisors to do something about these things. Uh, I wouldn't be altogether surprised if the Human Rights Act, and, and it's not just the Human Rights Act, it is actually membership of the European Convention on Human Rights itself, uh, that I yeah. think is the problem. Um, I wouldn't be altogether surprised if that did become an issue over the next uh, few years. And the same with the with the Quangos, which which, as we know, Tony Blair and then Gordon Brown stuffed with Labour apparatchiks. And yet when it's come round to let's give one example, the Electoral Commission, the Electoral Commission is is bought and sold, but it, it belongs to the to to, to Labour. It's or, or it belongs to the left anyway. It does not give look at look at the way, way it treated people like poor old Darren Grimes. Um, it, it's 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 not it's not about justice. It's not about preserving the integrity of the electoral system. It's about it's about enforcing the left's agenda. And yet, what what's what what are the Conservatives doing about this injustice? They, they don't seem to be reforming it. They seem to be letting it get on with its own evil work. Yeah, I think there's a few things about this because I think that periodically you get. Uh, Tory activists or people in the in the conservative sympathetic media saying, you know, why the bloody hell have they just appointed this person to this quango? Or how is how is the NHS still run by a former advisor to Tony Blair? Uh, or you yeah. know, you know, the hell is the Electoral Commission all about? Um, and I, I mean, I think the Electoral Commission is beyond redemption. It needs to be abolished, uh, and, yeah. and we need to we need to uh, probably replace it in some way. But it certainly should be abolished. Um, my view is it is partly about personalities um, and the political beliefs of the people in the positions, but only to a point. Because even if you appoint um, perfectly sensible conservatives to these positions, um, you find that you find that they themselves are fighting a kind of losing, running battle internally as well. Um, so I think, yes, in part, it is actually the nature of quangos themselves, and so and so. Um, I think you know, I think there is a there is a case for plenty of the quangos to continue existing. Um, some of them uh, that might that might not be the case, and we might be able to abolish some of them. Um, but but actually, I think, and this you know, I come back to the Human Rights Act and Equality Act. What is that? Why is it that relatively normal people, some of you know, many of whom aren't especially political and aren't necessarily left wing, uh, why? Why are they creating this permanently politically correct culture? And I think part of my answer to that is, well, it's not a surprise if every time the police or the probation service or prison officers or whoever, whenever they have to make a decision about protecting the public uh, and cutting crime and catching criminals, they have to balance it with the rights of criminals or illegal immigrants or whatever. Um, because of their article this rights and article that rights, um, then especially in bureaucracies, because they, you know they all, they're always overly cautious. They always like to gold plate and make sure that they're just going a bit further than they have yeah. to, 
to cover their asses maybe, but that is the culture. Um, if, you, if you're always asking people to consider the human rights aspects of something, then that is going to skew their decision making. And similarly with the equalities legislation. So if you impose on every bit of the public sector across the country, the public sector equalities duty, and, and you say pretty much anything you have to do, every, every change you want to make, you have to, um, I don't think these are technically compulsory, but in effect, they end up being something like that. Yeah. Uh, they have to do these equality impact assessments. Um, then it, it's just the same as the human rights thing. It's chilling. Um, it, it sets the parameters of a decision. Um, and, and I don't think it's then a surprise that all these public sector bodies uh, basically come across as left-wing as they, as, as they are right now. It's because, I think it's, yes. it's, it's so much part because of those legal frameworks. I think, no, I've, I've heard this before. I think, I think this is a point that Peter Hitchens has made. So, do, look, you've got better Westminster contacts than me. Do you get any sense there's any appetite for making those massive changes? I mean, it's quite a big deal abolishing acts, isn't it? Yeah, well, I Axing think... Axing acts. Yeah, it's difficult to say that, axing acts. Um, yeah, no. I, think yeah. the, the, I, think, I think it's more likely that there will be a debate about the Human Rights Act and DCHR uh, than the Equalities Act. Uh, I think there is a part of the Tory parliamentary party um, that, uh, that will find that very difficult. Um, uh, some I hate of, them. I hate them. Some of those people... Some of those people I think I've actually left the parliamentary party because um, uh, they're the kinds of people who are, who are upset about Brexit too. Um, uh, so, so, so I don't think that either of these things are likely to happen without any kind of a fight. Uh, but I think whether it's whether it's for sort of cynical electoral reasons, or whether it's actually just because you know the issues that keep coming up show that we need to do something about this, or whether it's actually just the way politics is kind of changing on a sort of structural basis. Um, uh, it feels to me like uh, certainly human rights are going to come up as, a, as an issue for the Tories to address, because in electoral terms, right now, Keir Starmer wants to kill all the cultural questions and take things back to an economic dividing line, because the cultural issues kill his potential electoral coalition. Um, uh, so all he wants to do is keep everything focused on economic matters and competence. And for Boris yeah. to protect his electoral coalition that he won in December, um, you know, one wing of which is the now slightly marginal seats of like posh places like Winchester, um, but is also like, you know, real places. Uh, like Dudley and Warsaw and Derby and Middlesbrough and Bolsover and places yeah. like that. Um, then to win in those places again, uh, uh, I think he probably is going to have to move to the left on the economy, but he's also going to have to be quite robust on cultural matters. Um, and and I'm sure, I'm sure Don Cummings is more than aware of that. And Keir Starmer is, after all, a career human rights lawyer. Um, and so you can sort of see the politics drawing um, uh, the parties, perhaps, to a row about, uh, about the future of human rights legislation, because I suspect Starmer wouldn't be able to help himself. 
Right. Interesting. Well, that's a sort of tiny crumb, tiny crumb of, of comfort you've given me um, in, in, in a otherwise desert of, of, of despair. <laughs> now, I've got to ask you far more important. I noticed from that 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 blue, the, the, the blue behind you on the um, on the. The, the, the shutters on your window, whatever they are. You you are in Greece, well, you told me before, so it wasn't I mean, exactly a difficult... Out. It normally looks like that. It's, 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 it's lovely. Uh, what I want to know is, where are you? How did you get there? How much hassle was it? And are you getting a kind of good deal? So, uh, so I... I'm glad I can clear this up, actually, because I don't want to be accused of uh, a Stanley Johnson-style... Uh, a trip via Bulgaria or wherever, wherever he went. Um, no, the, my family situation is a little bit complicated, and Martina, my partner, uh, uh, still works in Geneva. Uh, so we've been living between London and Geneva for a while. And, and right. so at the beginning of, just before lockdown was obviously about to arrive, I went out to Geneva. So I'd been in Switzerland uh, for most of the lockdown. And then I, uh, and then, Last week we came to Greece because it's quite difficult. There are hardly any cases in Switzerland and not very many cases in Greece. So they're, they're completely relaxed about flights from Switzerland. I think they're a bit more um, paranoid oh. about Britain. But, and, but are, you, are you renting somewhere? Are you staying in a hotel? Are you renting an apartment or what? Uh, or is this your, your property? A little house on the island of Paros, which is very nice. And so, the, the, look, this is what I'm trying to find out. I w- I'm desperate for for some some Mediterranean sun and some calamari or similar. Uh, how is it? Is it kind of empty at the moment? Is it is it a good place to go at the moment? Paros or the, Greek, the various uh, Greek islands? It's a, I think it's a little quieter than in other summers, uh, but it's yeah. uh, so it, so it's not quite the same. And and I think the locals are a bit uh, nervous. Uh, you, you can tell that there's a certain. I think they probably take the distancing and the mask wearing and that kind of thing a bit more seriously than certainly they do back do in they? Geneva. Yeah. Oh right. So what, when you go out to your taverna, they're, they're coming because Zorba is coming over the uh, over the mask. Is that right? Yeah, quite a lot of people wearing masks, especially especially in shops and um, and the restaurants are just quite quiet. Right. And have the prices gone up, or is it about the same? Yeah, it's all about the same. Uh, the flight's quite difficult to get, but other than that, it was the same. Right. Okay. Well, thank you for that that key travel <laughs> travel yeah. bulletin. And, uh, and listen, Nick. It was called "Wish You Were Here." That that terrible travel program in the eighties. Uh, I feel like I just did a bulletin. Judith, Judith, Judith Chalmers. Yeah, <laughs> I believe was the presenter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That those were those were happier times, though. We we concerned ourselves with with trivia in a way that we don't anymore. You're not allowed to talk trivia. You're not allowed to talk. Everything is politically charged. I mean, that's not my imagination, is it? I definitely think that's true. Uh, I think we spent we spent years saying well, lots well, lots of people spent years saying that they wished uh, people were more politically engaged. Now everybody's politically engaged. Everyone's permanently furious. It's awful. I think people should that people's natural state should be not to think about politics. I think it should be for for weird wonks like you, obsessives like you and me. But, yeah. but the, the, the the civilians should be left out of this war. I kind of agree. Yeah. Okay, Nick. Thank you so much. I, I mean, I, I particularly appreciate this, given that you've sacrificed uh, over an hour of your Greek 
son. Um, so I think you should go and reward yourself now with a delicious Greek salad and perhaps some tzatziki and maybe a glass of ouzo or red tea. <laughs> I'm just being envious here. You know, I'm, I'm fantasizing about your situation. Thank you, you very much. No, I really appreciate it. I'll see you later. I, I'd appreciate that. Okay. Oh, one more thing. Um, people, some people, are, um, the subscribers to my Patreon and my Subscribestar are getting this podcast much earlier. So if you want access to future podcasts earlier and also to my weekly Not My Spectator column, don't forget, sign up to me, uh, either Subscribestar or Patreon, and then I can afford more holidays in Greece, probably, just like <laughs> Nick. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. Great. Enjoy your Great holiday. Time. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.